Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. I'm excited to be preaching. Um, I do, I do really enjoy it. I love, I love teaching. Um, I love this this opportunity that I get. So, um, welcome. It's really good to to be with you. And my name's Mike. For those of you that I, I haven't yet met, we don't have Battersea and Westside streaming in today, which is a bit unusual. But they may watch later. So, hello, Battersea and Westside, um, and all those who are watching online. So, as Julia said, we. Um, we're in a series called Counterfeit Gods. Now, if you remember the, the first time you were here, if you were here, um, there was a 50-bill note on your chair. Um, I brought them back just because of, it's a fan favorite. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, what we're trying to do by, by doing that is paint a little bit of a picture, hopefully, that helps us to engage with this idea of idolatry, which is a, a foreign concept to us um, in our day and age. You don't hear lots of talk about this, save perhaps a few Sundays a year in church, and so what, what is idolatry? Well, the best way to understand it is to think about it in terms of the counterfeit versus the real. So this, this picture of, of a fake $50 bill, which you now know is fake. Um, I didn't come up here with a wad of cash. Um, uh, you may wonder where your tithe money is going. Um, so fake money, the way that uh, bankers, uh, federal agents can determine whether money is real or it's counterfeit is to hold up the money in front of them uh, and they're actually trained on the real, not the counterfeit. So that the moment the fake is put in front of them, they can spot it. So they become so acquainted with the real that the fake is obvious. And when we're thinking about idolatry, we're thinking about things that have the promise of power but don't have the ability to fulfill it, like a fake note. Has this promise of being able to do something in your life, buy something for you potentially, but doesn't have the ability to actually do it when you try to use it. Idolatry is similar. It's something that looks good, it's something that even has a seeming power to it, but the moment we actually try to live it out, to use it in our lives, it falls and it crumbles under the weight of our lives and our expectations. So we're looking at three major counterfeit gods in the series, um, love, money, and power. And it's not that these three things are bad in and of themselves. That, that is not the point we're trying to make. Actually, to be honest, they're probably fairly neutral, love, money, and power. They can be used for good and they can be used for ill, depending on how they're engaged with and used. And so we're not trying to say that love, money, and power are evil in themselves. That is, that's not the case. But biblical idolatry is when we take something that is not evil in itself, is not even bad, but a good thing, and turn it into an ultimate thing. So an understanding of biblical idolatry is when we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing. It starts to sit on the throne of our lives. Romans chapter 1 verse 25 gives us this core diagnosis of the problem that we all face and hit up against even if we don't know it. And it's this, that we worship and serve created things rather than the creator God, who is forever to be praised. Amen. Paul's words, Romans chapter 1. Worship and serve created things instead of the creator God. We exchange the creator for the created, and it leads to all kinds of mess in our lives. So what, what could be an idol today? Well, all sorts of things by that definition. Anything good that becomes ultimate becomes an idol. It could be bodily health and fitness. It could be food, it could be clothing or online shopping, 
It could be a romantic relationship, career success, the good opinion of friends. It could be absolutely anything. Notice, they're not bad things. They're good things that have become ultimate in our lives. They have a controlling influence over our affections, our moods, our time, our resources. So to remind myself of the difference between the counterfeit and the real, I've actually stuck up um, one of these 50, uh, fake 50 uh, pound bill notes on our fridge. And every time I walk past it, just have a little moment of going, remember the real, just remember the real. And uh, so I encourage you, I've got a whole stack here for those who are in the room. If you didn't take it with you last time, take it with you today, stick it up on your fridge, use it as a bookmark on your Bible, as a little reminder to remember the real. So George just spoke two weeks ago on singleness. If you weren't here, it was a pretty hard-hitting uh, message. And uh, it, was, it was incredible. It led to helpful conversations, also led to really challenging conversations um, for some. And we acknowledged that, and we had an amazing time in life groups unpacking the different facets um, of how people experience that, that talk. So I do encourage you, if you feel like you're leaving Sundays without having got to the depths of where you want to go, life groups are an amazing place where people are, are getting to those depths. So today, we're going to move on into another aspect of this kind of love part of the Counterfeit God series, and that is to the aspect of dating, which is pretty tough to understand in the 21st um, century. It's a relatively new phenomenon. In fact, the word was only first used around the early 1900s. So relative to human history, it's a fairly new concept uh, and word. Um, it used to be courtship. So if, uh, familiar with that term where someone would literally take a calling card over to someone's house and only by consent of the family would this person be allowed to sit chaperoned um, for a conversation in the living room and, uh, and somehow build a relationship that way that would lead, <laughs> lead to marriage. Um, and so that's how suitors and that's how it happened. That's how it happened. So um, I would say that that's a, a sharp contrast with something like Love Island, um, <laughs> which you can see, I found this picture. I, I don't know about you, but as an advertisement for Love Island, I found that fairly disturbing. Um, it, uh, it, looks like, it looks like one of those shark films where, where someone is sitting unaware on a board and the sharks, I mean, there's all sorts of wrong with, with that picture. But anyway, um, it, is, it is a firm favorite. Many people watch Love Island. I'm sure many people here watch Love Island or did watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette um, as one of the first uh, kind of initiatives in that, in that space. And I think one of the evidences that the dating apocalypse might be upon us is, is a, a show called Naked Attraction. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of that or seen that, but don't, my recommendation is not to watch it. Um, but it, it does provide a sharp contrast um, with that picture of courtship that um, was just a mere hundred years ago. It seems that based on some of these programs that we, we have in front of us that we kind of require exotic or mildly disturbing um, situations in which to decide on our true love story. These programs suggest a trend, and maybe I can put the trend as a, as a question. Are we or do we value falling in love more than staying in love and the commitment that that takes? Do we value falling in love more than staying in love and the commitment that that takes, just something to think about as we get going. Don't get me wrong, 
I love falling in love. I fell in love with Julia, um, and we got married, and that was fantastic. It's a, it's a great experience falling in love. But science reveals that 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 kind of process, that cognitive reality of falling and being completely gaga for um, someone else lasts about 12 to 18 months, and then it starts to fade. So the, the question remains, what happens? <laughs> Julia got a real deal. Um, it's, it's not that you don't still love the person. It's that that crazy phase starts uh, to fade. So what happens when you no longer feel the feels, or you no longer have that crazy situation where you are falling in love? What happens? What happens then? Is that a solid enough basis for a relationship to last a lifetime? There have to be other factors. There have to be other features. So let me, let me just pose this one more question um, before we jump into it together, which is why are we speaking about dating on a Sunday? when it may not be directly relevant to every person um, in this room. Why, why are we doing that? Well, firstly, it's helpful to know what's happening around us. Church always exists in culture, always. And so we need to understand that relationship of what it looks like to live as the church in our surrounding culture. We need to understand the water we're swimming in, the air that we're breathing around us in the culture that we are in. And if we're to engage thoughtfully and support each other, this is a helpful thing for us to do. Secondly, either we talk about it in this space and we figure it out together as the church, or we let culture lead the conversation. It really is one or the other. So why not do it together in this space um, and find that way of following Jesus together in that space? And then just thirdly, it's great to know who we can be praying for and how we can be praying and to support each other prayerfully in this time. There was a uh, kind of when I was um, single before I was married, I asked three really close Christian friends to pray for me every day for a year, that I would essentially live my life well as a single person, but if it was God's will, that God would also lead me to a particular person. Um, and so I find that I found community an incredible strength to me in that space, and we want to be that kind of community for each other. So I don't have, I don't have time or um, all the expertise to speak to every question on the issue of dating um, or outline the perfect approach to dating, not that I think there is one. Um, but I want to do my best to be sensitive today, realizing that this is still a, a sensitive um, space. And uh, I also want to frame this positively. This is not a finger-wagging moment, um, just to put that out there so you know and are not afraid. Um, I want to try and frame this as positively as I can. So here's how I want to do that. Three things. Uh, we can get rid of that Love Island um, <laughs> shark attack scene. Um, I want to clarify the role of the Bible like in terms of dating. How do we think about the relationship, what the Bible says um, to dating? I want to talk about two common errors that we can make when it comes to dating and relationships. And then lastly, I want uh, to encourage us to turn to our living hope. So Bible and dating, two common errors, and then uh, our living hope. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah? Okay, so let's start by talking about the Bible and dating. So another thing that may be confusing for us when we think about dating um, and the Bible is that there's no verse in the Bible that explicitly addresses dating as we know it. There's not a single verse in the Bible that addresses dating as we know it. What do you do with that? Is that cause for panic? Do we just kind of make up our own rules as we go along then, because the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly about it. Well, there are also no verses that explicitly mention online shopping, Netflix, 
or artificial intelligence? What do we do? It does speak to a broader question of what do we do with things that come up that don't have an explicit Bible verse for us to go and point to? What do we do? Well, the one thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that God has nothing to say about these different issues. We don't develop a Christian approach to something by finding a single text that seems to speak about or prove our point. Endless things could be endorsed or undermined by using that method. So that's not how we go about the approach of finding stuff in Scripture. There's another way to form a considered approach to something, a Christian approach to something, we begin with Scripture and Christ. So we start by identifying core principles and themes that we can find as present throughout Scripture. What are those core principles and themes? Secondly, we consider how Christ taught and lived these out in his own ministry and person. What did it look like when Jesus lived this out in his life, these core principles and themes? And what does formation as his disciples look like as we do the same today? And then thirdly, we apply these kind of timeless truths or principles to new and ever-changing scenarios that we come across around us. So we identify core principles and themes. We ask, what did it look like for Christ to live these out in his life, in his context, and formation as disciples um, following him, and then applying those to our day in our time. As you can see, it takes a bit of work. It's not simple. It's not easy. But this is the process um, that we go on. So though we don't have verses that refer explicitly to dating in the Bible, we have lots that speak about the priority of love and purity in relationships as a core theme that we find throughout Scripture. So at the risk of doing exactly what I, I said I wouldn't do, which is to try and proof text something, I want to give you two examples um, of this. And I, I made a whole list of, of kind of Old Testament and New Testament examples of purity and love in relationships. So there's many, but I don't have time to give you more than two. So this core principle and theme of love, in the words of Jesus, John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, he says it like this, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then on the kind of core principle and theme of purity, here's another one from the New Testament. Yeah, Paul writing to Thessalonian church, his first letter, he says this in chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter four. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornification, that each of you knows how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so two examples, of one of love, one of purity that we see with many other examples like that throughout the Bible that create a consistent and core theme and practice in how we are to live as God's people. So we need to consider these core principles of love and purity and ask, are they in our relationships? Are they part of how we do relationships or are they not? Is Jesus' kind of love evident in my life? and my relationships. Is my love Jesus-shaped? Notice what he says. He says, just as I have loved you. That's the example of love. Our love is to be Christ-shaped and formed. Obviously, we won't get that perfectly right, but that is the call. As I have loved you, so love one 
another? Is Jesus' kind of love evident in my life? Or on the issue of purity, do I recognize when it's appropriate to restrain my desires? There are certain contexts where we all know, not just relationally, but in many different contexts where it is appropriate to place restraint on things we want to do. Why would it be different when it comes to relationships? Is there a godly kind of restraint? Is there a wisdom and understanding when it's right to restrain or to proceed? Do my relationships reflect that God exists? Notice that last part of, of that verse on purity. Not lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. We do know God. We know that God exists. We know that God has created all things and his design and blueprint for life leads to flourishing and to life. And so are we acting like practical atheists when we decide on our, how we do our relationships or are we factoring God into the picture and the equation? Do my relationships reflect that God exists? So I want to put it to us that these are hugely helpful, practical, biblical reference points when trying to, to date Christianly or even think about our relationships. Are we applying these core themes and practices that we see in Scripture? So that's a, a word about Bible and dating, how we think about these two things together. I hope that helped rather than confused. The second thing is two common errors that we can make. Two common errors that we can make. Tertullian, an early church theologian from North Africa around the third century AD, um, has given us kind of a powerful picture to try and understand the two errors that we can fall into. He put it like this. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. Between two errors. What are those errors? Well, the one on the one hand is legalism, and on the other hand is license or licentiousness. So if you want to get really kind of theologian, it's antinomianism. But if that one's a bit hard to say, legalism and license are the two errors. Simply put, legalism emphasizes moralism. I am accepted by God based on what I do. Accepted by God based on what I do. Whereas license emphasizes relativism. Because I am, someone's calling me, because, because I am accepted by God, what I do doesn't matter. God is so gracious and so loving that even if I make a mistake, he will forgive me. So what I do doesn't matter. The license to do whatever I want. Right, so these are those two areas. But there's a third way, which is the way of the gospel. I'm more sinful than I ever imagined, but more loved than I ever dared hope. More sinful than I ever imagined, more loved than I ever dared hope. Undeserved mercy and grace has been given to us freely by God. Freely by God. And so the gospel, rightly understood, brings about humble confidence and grateful obedience. That's the third way of the gospel between these two errors. So what does any of this have to do with dating? Well, I'm really glad um, that you asked because I do need to try and tie this in. When we think about the error of license, we can think about it today as romanticism. Romanticism as our error. And we think about it in terms of um, the other error of legalism, we can think about it as puritanism, these two errors, romanticism and puritanism. And I do want to, someone's really trying to get hold of me, I'm sorry. Um, 
I do want to spend a bit of time on both of these. So firstly, the era of romanticism. So as a result of lots of factors, including sexual and cultural revolutions of the 1960s and 70s, a major shift has occurred over the last 100 years. Every generation um, before the recent ones have looked to God or the gods as ultimate in their lives for their meaning, for their purpose, for how they should live and treat one another. But something has changed significantly in the 20th century. God was demoted and replaced with something perceived to be superior, the romantic partner. So listen to how the Jewish culture anthropologist Ernst Becker put it. It's a really interesting quote from his book, The Denial of Death. He put it like this. We're the first society who has a widespread belief that there is no ultimate future, no existence beyond the grave, and therefore no eternal significance. So doing, we believe that we're really insignificant. But we still want to find something that gives our lives meaning and significance. But if we don't have God, how do we do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification we need, we look for not in God, but in a person who loves us. What do we hope to find in this person? We want to be rid of our faults, our feelings of nothingness, redemption, nothing less. Powerful quote. And he concludes this whole section this way. He says, but no person can stand the burden of godhood. No person can stand the burden of godhood. That weight that we've transferred from God to the romantic partner is crushing that particular person because no one can carry the weight of our life and expectation of our hopes, the burden of godhood. So romantic love, though it's good in itself, has become ultimate in our culture. It has become ultimate. This is the air we're breathing, it's the water that we're swimming. But some have swimming in, but some have actually pointed to the fact that we've moved beyond the romantic solution and into something called hookup culture. It's no longer about a, a fairy tale love story so much as a thrilling sexual encounter, encounter, potentially even with a stranger, someone I've never met before. Sex isn't significant, there's no particular need to wait for something like marriage, it's casual, and it's totally disconnected from commitment. Another part of this is cohabitation. We, we're moving in um, together before married. I just want to say, I don't have a lot of time to speak to this, but just want to give a brief note on the kind of try before you buy um, approach. And uh, just to say that it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually work. There's been multiple academic studies that have shown that only one in five cohabiting relationships end um, with those two people together in a marriage. One in five. In fact, it's kind of failure rate has a name in academic literature. It's called the cohabitation effect. It's not a Christian study. It's not a Christian conclusion. These are the facts that are coming to us from studies on family and marriage. Just want us to think about that. What does that mean? So let me summarize this um, part before we go into the other era. Romanticism, including hookup culture and cohabitation, is not compatible with a Christian vision for relationships. It's just not. And it's the first error that we need to watch out for.
What about that second era? Well, this is that era of legalism, of Puritanism. So what happened is as a result of our culture swing towards romanticism, the church has felt like we need to batten down the hatches. We need to get really careful about how we do relationships and marriage. And has actually overreacted and sprinted towards the other side, which is the side of Puritanism. A recent example of this, perhaps you've read some of these books, is uh, Joshua Harris's books, I Kiss Date and Goodbye, or Boy Meets Girl. Has anyone read those books before? I did. I read them when I was 20 and I was 21. And uh, it was fairly compelling as a 19, 20, 21 year old reading these books. But there was something that also felt a little bit off about them. And as I've reflected on them um, as an adult, as someone who's gone into their 20s, I've realized that the purity culture that it created was ultimately too pressurized and formulaic. There was so much pressure attached to purity culture. You had to marry the person you dated. If you dated more than once, you ultimately were impure, not ready to, to be married. Or there was that image in his book of the multiple partners that you've dated coming up to the front at the moment where you give your I do's. It was very intense. No dating, no breakups, just jump into a marriage. It didn't allow for risk and it didn't allow for mistakes. It also produced this thing called the right person myth. This myth that there's only one person that for me in the whole of the six X or whatever billion people in the world is perfectly right for me. And unless I find that person, I'm a failure or my relationship will fail. I must wait for God to reveal that one right person. The problem is that I don't think this is true. And this is my opinion. I, you may disagree, but I don't think that this is true. But I do think that there, are, there is such a thing as good and bad matches. I think there's a continuum that we can find ourselves on where we can be a good match or a bad match between two people. But this one right person, I think, has ultimately crippled us in the church and made us feel hor horrendously terrified of making even just one mistake. But there is risk in relationship. There are mistakes that we're gonna make in relationship. This is going to happen. So to set up your entire marriage in the future as something that's only going to be good unless you never make a mistake is to put way too much pressure on the situation. But we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Purity still matters. But puritanism is when we take something good like purity and make it ultimate in our lives. I would love this church space and for churches in general to be a space where we're not afraid to explore the possibility of relationships. If not here, if not in the church, where? Where? If we're hoping to marry someone who shares the same worldview that we do, where God is at the center and we're looking to follow Jesus, if that is the goal, which, which I, I hope it is, then where are we going to meet as, apart from within the church? And it may not necessarily be in this church, but in the church, it, could it possibly be a space where we practice this well, where we do this well as a community? And that may be on something like a dating app. It may be on something like Hinge, where, where you can set your preferences for a particular thing or person, or on Salt, which is a, a kind of premier Christian dating app, if you haven't heard of that um, before. It may be on a dating app. I don't know if you know this, but there's about 30 million people on, people on dating apps right now. 
And I found this stat really interesting. Imperial College says that there's, by 2035, more than 50% of relationships in the UK will start online. 50%. This seems to be the direction that things um, are heading in mostly for many people. And we can't look down on that as lesser than or as not okay. I think we can create a space where we can do this well as a community. Can I just give one or two tips that I've drawn from um, experts in the field that have been able to um, <laughs> help me think through this? Firstly, if you're on a dating app, be yourself. Be yourself. Quotes, profile pictures, all these kinds of things, let it be representative of who you actually are. Run your profile by one or two Christians who know you really well. Don't take ghosting personally. Don't take ghosting personally. And also just something I, I feel personally is, let's not be those people who do that. Let's not, be the, let's, let's not be the people who ghost other people, but actually decide to be respectful in our communication with people. And can we be aware of the silos and dangers individual networking can create and try to do this when it's not weird in a community um, together? So perhaps the space in the church and where we're doing this, practicing this, is on dating apps, or perhaps it's in person. Let's not be afraid also to approach people in person and say, would you be interested in a coffee? Or whatever it is that doesn't feel weird for you to say. But let's not do it in a weird way. Let, I would love it if this became a non-weird thing in the church, where it was just okay to ask, and as the asker, to be prepared to, for the other person to also say no, and for that not to be deeply offensive. I'm just trying to be clear. Okay. So don't allow Puritanism with its insistence on no mistakes and the right person myth to pile on the paralyzing pressure on your life either. That is the second error. And it's really hard to avoid both errors, right? This era of romanticism where we kind of throw off all restraint and we just dive headlong into the way culture has decided relationships should look. And the puritanism that has come from that purity culture that says no risk, no mistakes are possible in relationships. How do we walk through those two errors as we seek to follow Jesus together? That's the goal. And can we do this together as a community? Can we support each other in this as a community? Can we pray for each other as a community as we find and encounter different struggles in this space? If not here, where? If not here, where? Let's be that community that does this well together. I'm gonna to need to finish here, but what I want us to do is, I'm gonna invite the, the uh, worship team up here um, for a moment. We'll sing another song after this, but I want us just to create a moment to respond as well um, to what I've been saying today. It's not supposed to be a message of heavy judgment or prescription. I'm not trying to prescribe how your relationships ought to be going or about. I'm trying in a sense to give us the shape that I believe scripture gives us to be living into following Jesus in this space. So it's not supposed to be heavy. And I also do want to say, if this is an area in which you feel like you have fallen into one of those two mistakes, 
One of, the, one of those two areas, even unconsciously or unwittingly, you found yourself in that space, even in your thinking about how to go about this. There's no shame in this space today. There's no shame in this space. We want to create space for Jesus to meet you where you are at, to meet you in the disappointment, to meet you in the regrets that you might have, to meet you in the shame that you might have. We want to create space to hold all of that and to bring it to Jesus this morning. So can I encourage you to do that, just to be bold in your own heart? When we start worship, we're going to create space at the front. Um, or where you are, you can just spend a moment with God or someone to pray with you next to you. We want to bring these things to him. And ultimately, uh, can I invite us to stand um, as I share this last little bit? just close our eyes um, together. I want to encourage us as we're just closing our eyes and we're asking God to speak and to meet with us. What does it look like today to turn back towards our living hope? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is our living hope. Our hope is alive because He is alive. Turning away from the counterfeit gods towards Jesus, our living hope. Our purpose is to know Him. Our purpose is to know Him, to be in relationship with Him. If you felt like you've had to turn away from Him in this space, could I encourage you to turn back towards him? So Holy Spirit, I invite you, ask you to come and work in hearts right now that might be churning, might be frustrated, might be disappointed, holding all sorts of emotions. Lord, I ask for you to come. Our goal is simply to come to you as we are where we are. Not letting shame stop us, not letting frustration or disappointment stop us as difficult as it may be, to turn back towards our living hope. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.